This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. It does make a considerable difference to me having someone with me on whom I can thoroughly rely. And you're supposed to finish the quote, James. Oh, see, I need someone who I can rely on, man. Uh, good day to you all, and welcome back to Franchise Fatigue. Uh, this is a show where we discuss movie franchises film by film. I am your utterly narcissistic and irritating host, Gabe Green, and with me, as always, is my long-suffering, faithful friend and co-host, James Hamrick. How's it going? Pretty good. Completely agree with that. <laughs> me too, unfortunately. Uh, so today, uh, we are starting a new series. We finished Toy Story last week, and we will be discussing Guy Ritchie's 2009 film, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, before we get into that, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Um, so let's just dive right into our discussion of Sherlock Holmes. James, why don't you tell us a bit about the making of this film? All right, so, so obviously the movie is based off of the classic Sherlock Holmes novels by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, Doyle published his first work um, about Sherlock Holmes with A Study in Scarlet, and that was back in 1887. Uh, and he continued publishing kind of off and on until 1927, so there's a, a good bit of material there. All in all, there's a total of four different novels and 56 short stories. Uh, it was a huge success back then, and it's kind of continued to be a success. It's it's dipped here and there, but I feel like it's never very long between some sort of adaptation, whether movie or plays or shows and things like that. Um, I think it currently has the Guinness World Record for most adapted proper, uh, property with over 70 actors having portrayed the character in over 200 films and TV shows. Um, they're, they're still making it, you know. You had, we had like Mr. Holmes, uh, the, uh, Sherlock Gnomes uh, <laughs> is coming out, and then there's the uh, the Watson and Holmes movie with uh, John C. Riley and Will Ferrell coming out this year, I think. Yeah, and technically like two uh, running shows with Sherlock and Elementary. Yeah. Yeah, it, it never feels like uh, his popularity is waned too much. Yeah, so the uh, the original concept uh, for this particular reimagining came from uh, writer-producer Lionel Wiggum, uh, best known for like some of the Harry Potter films. Uh, he had been wanting to do something new and original with the, uh, with the character of Sherlock Holmes for around a decade. In uh, 2006, he started to put together uh, you know, different concepts from the original stories with a, a much more modern twist um, on the character of Holmes himself. Um, and of course, you know, <laughs> within the package of an action-adventure story. And instead of writing a spec script, he, he wrote his original treatment as a comic book and shopped uh, that around. In 2007, Warner Brothers agreed to produce it. Neil Marshall was originally hired to direct. Uh, he's currently uh, doing Hellboy right now. That would have been interesting. Uh, but eventually, Guy Ritchie was signed on to direct. Um, as far as the actual script that was shot, uh, Lionel Wiggum is credited with the story, uh, but Michael Robert Johnson, Anthony Peckman, and uh, Simon Kinberg of X-Men fame are credited with the actual screenplay itself. So whenever I got to casting, Ritchie was originally looking for someone in his late 20s to play the role. Um, but uh, Robert Downey Jr. was interested in it and uh, was eventually cast and you know, coming after, I guess was would, the casting would have been done just after Iron Man. Yeah, this I think this came, comes out like 
close to two years after Iron Man, like a year and three quarters or something. So there, there was some time in between. Yeah, and so I, I guess just immediately coming off of that, you know, it would be hard to say no to that kind of what's, you know, seeming and then what proved to be true, star power. Originally, Richie's first choice for uh, Watson was Russell Crowe, which, try as I might, I cannot imagine how that would work with Robert Downey Jr. It would be interesting to see, though. I feel like both actors are talented enough to where they could probably find a really cool back and forth. And I think Russell Crowe is, like, better with that kind of dry sarcasm than I think people might give him credit for. Yeah, that would be an entirely different dynamic almost like uh, i'm thinking um batfleck and uh jeremy irons uh kind of dynamic yeah where it's probably like they're closer to equals than they've ever really been portrayed in terms of age and things like that um uh and then as for the villain though mark strong had worked several times previously with richie um so i think everybody was just kind of waiting to hear who was going to be playing uh in this film, it ended up being as the lead villain, Lord Blackwood. Uh, it was Robert Downey Jr. who actually convinced Richie to cast Rachel McAdams as the mysterious Irene Adler. Um, Eddie Marson, Geraldine James, and Kelly Riley were cast as Holmes regulars, Inspector Lestrade, Mrs. Hudson, and Mary Morstan. Hans Matheson, James Fox, and William Hope play Lord Coward, Sir Thomas Rotherman, and Ambassador Standish. Uh, the, the filming was done mostly in and around London, but also but there are a lot of locations all over England. Just they made use of a lot of the existing architecture and structures to give the try and capture that kind of gothic uh, look of, of Victorian London. Um, there was some filming done in Brooklyn as well. I'm not sure what I'm, I'm assuming that might might have been just some of the studio work. Hans Zimmer composed the score for the film. <laughs> He's a, there's a story that he bought an old uh, out-of-tune piano for $200 and used that uh, to write the music for this film. And, you know, being a big fan of the soundtrack, I absolutely believe that. Uh, <laughs> the entire, you know, the sound is very intentionally, you know, imperfect. So that, that definitely makes sense. Uh, he te- very intentionally crafted you know, the uh, music to try and fit you know, the, the chaos and madness in Sherlock's mind. And I think that really comes across even, like even before I knew, knew had, even before I had, you know, read the interviews with uh, Zimmer, that's pretty much, pretty much what I thought. You know, it felt like it was trying to somehow create this cacophony of madness. Yet that's also brilliant that somehow, you know, gives us a taste of what is going on inside his head. And I think it, it works really well with his take on the character. Yeah, and it also just like fits the whole look and vibe of the movie. Like you've it that kind of gritty, rough around the edges kind of tone. Yeah, and uh, the song "The Rocky Road to Dublin" from the Irish band uh, the Dubliners was used uh, during the film as well. It it appears in the uh, bare knocking buckle. Uh, bare bare knocking buckle. <laughs> uh, it, it appears in the uh, bare knuckle boxing brawl uh, right around the middle, and uh, it was released on Christmas of two thousand nine. So before I actually get start talking about the film, uh, how, were you familiar at all with uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's original Sherlock Holmes stories, James? I mean, I guess as much as anyone uh, would be, you know, he, the name is just so popular. It's always kind of floating around. Everybody's kind of aware of it. I think the most I'd ever actually interacted with it was I listened to about half of the audiobook on a road trip with my cousins, and I was mm-hmm. vaguely paying attention and kind of you know 
use that to inform a lot of my opinion on him. So I, I knew about, you know, I, I knew all the quotes and things, um, but I had never actually read any of the work or seen any of that, uh, any of the adaptations until the movie had come out. Okay. Um, I, I was actually a really big fan of, um, the stories. I, I'm pretty sure I had read all of the novels and stories, but I think there might be one book I missed, but, uh, you know, several dozen of the stories and I was a very big fan of them. Um, and I think as far as other types, I know I'd seen uh, the the Nigel Bruce Basil Rathbone uh, dressed to kill. So I, I think I was fairly familiar with the character. Uh, <laughs> fairly, uh, pr- pretty familiar with the character. Um, and I think I would have considered myself a, a pretty big fan. Uh, so what was your uh, first uh, experience with the movie itself? We saw the trailers when it first came out, and we thought, you know, I mean, it looks okay. We may go see it, and I, I think we planned on seeing it as a family, but that never really ended up happening. And so one day is just kind of a similar story with Men in Black Three, where my dad and I were just bored around the house. We're like, ah, oh, let's go watch a movie. So we went out and saw that, and we both really loved it. So we went back and we convinced. Uh, my sisters to go see it so we saw it a second time and they loved it and so we bought it when it uh, came out and i've been a big fan since uh both this and the sequel Mm -hmm. well this film is actually very uh important for my journey to becoming a film buff uh just a a bit of a backstory this was basically roughly around i think 2010 2011 when i was you know just becoming just starting to realize how much i loved films uh, but this was also happening at a time when my parents were trying to cut back the, the t- uh, amounts and types of media the family consumed. Um, so, you know, just as I was wanting to watch as many movies as possible, my parents were trying to cut back uh, on the movies I saw. So that created a lot of tension, but also me, you know, being a very resourceful teen with a rather dubious morals. <laughs> I, uh, kind of, I would borrow my brother's portable DVD player and borrow quote-unquote, uh, DVDs for my other brother, who's more independent. And I I know I watched several dozen, maybe at least a hundred films, uh, I know, on like in the middle of the night, uh, you know, under the covers. <laughs> and and this was uh, one of my favorites. Um, I think it just came at that perfect time as I was, you know, becoming more aware of, you know, filmmaking and seeing Guy Ritchie's very brazen, in-your-face style and, just experiencing that incredible chemistry between Jude Law and Robert Downey Jr. Just something about this film really struck a chord with me and I think very much uh, informed, you know, how I looked at movies. Um, and so I, I definitely have a very huge soft spot. And I, I think similarly to, similarly to uh, Toy Story, uh, I don't know that I can be fully objective with this just <laughs> because basically every aspect of this movie you know, from the filmmaking to the acting to the just the, the entire style is absolutely perfect for me. So uh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, it's a it's a very easy movie to watch and it's a whole lot of fun. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, and I think the best place to start would just be discussing whether whether or not this is a faithful adaptation of the character, because the. Filmmakers were very consciously trying to bring the character into a more modern style of uh, filmmaking. But 
in in all the um in all the behind the scenes, they're all they're trying very hard to pound in the idea that they're trying to to be the faithful version, and this is actually what it was like in the books, and it's not entirely. I mean, there are definitely a lot of Easter eggs that I very much enjoyed. You know, being a fan of the books, but this is a different take. This is not what Doyle envisioned um, when he wrote the stories. However, that doesn't mean it's necessarily unfaithful to the spirit. Um, I guess you, you only were exposed to a couple of stories. Uh, how, how did you view that? Or was it even a concern for you as far as you know, a matter of adaptation? Um, well, as far as it being a concern, I can say it wasn't really at all. Um, you know, I had no emotional attachment to the character at all. And so, honestly, after the film came out, this then became like, I guess, my baseline for viewing Sherlock Holmes stories and things like that. You know, after uh, whenever the show with Benedict Cumberpatch came on afterwards, I kind of compared that to the movies and not really to any other like external idea of the character I had. So um, for better or for worse, I just kind of enjoyed it on its own terms. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the aspects of the characterization in particular do ring true to the stories obviously they're heavily exaggerated um you know off generally for comedic effect but i i I don't think the general adaptations you know where holmes is this you know perfectly poised a gentleman who is you know very calm and collected and all and you know always has full control of his surroundings that's not entirely what the character is you know throughout the books there was a lot you know about like various addictions and, you know, where he would, you know, go between these, you know, these soaring highs whenever he had a case, this really deep depression in between cases and like very, very, you know, self-destructive as far as his health. So I think the filmmakers definitely are taking heavy inspiration from the stories and even aspects like the, uh, you know, the martial arts um, were definitely present in the books. You know, they, they weren't used a lot, but there's definitely a lot more fisticuffs than, you know, a lot of the adaptations would have you think. So it's definitely exaggerated. I, I, I can't say it's, I, I can't say that this is the version that it should have been all along, but I, I think there's definitely a lot of heavy inspiration uh, all throughout. And, and, you know, being a story that has been adapted 200 times, I, there's definitely some room to, for change, to change the formula. And that's what this did, you know, for better or worse. Um, so I guess you know, getting you know directly into what this film is, uh, what are what are some things that uh, stand out to you in particular? Well, I mean, I think the number one thing is the cast, like particularly with Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Jude Law. I think their their dynamic and their chemistry with each other is absolutely like what carries this movie. Not that there's anything else. Like, I don't think there's anything particularly bad about it. Um, it's pretty it varies from good to great on almost all aspects but it's the leads that really sell the whole concept and this whole new take for me so just i think that despite how much i might enjoy seeing russell crowe as a uh, watson <laughs> there's just I, I don't think there's really anything any amount of enjoyment i could have got from that that would be more than uh how much fun it is to watch these two banter yeah, um, like that in particular is the one thing that has always stood out to me. It's just how 
absolutely perfect these two people are on screen together. And they have some really fantastic dialogue and back and forth to work with, but it goes, their chemistry goes way beyond that. Even when they're like just standing there, uh, there's one shot in particular after, um, after the, when they first meet in the beginning of the film and during oh, the yeah. opening and they, uh, each of, they both pull off their hats and kind of look into the middle distance and the camera just kind of comes up on them. And it's just, there's something so undefinable about it, but that it, it's just so perfectly, uh, you know, just captures how great of a team they are together and just how in sync they, they are. Even, you know, even with all their squabbling and arguing, there's never a moment, no matter what they're doing, you know, whether it's, you know, just being, you know, in perfect sync on the, on the hunt or, you know, just completely at each other's throats, every moment they feel the chemistry is absolutely palpable with them. And it, it, you just can't look away. And honestly, if it, any dialogue, even the most, even the most mundane, I think is absolutely hilarious. I just, the whole opening is really brilliant, but the one, the, again, going back to that introduction where he's like, yo, I like the hat. Really? I just picked it up. Did you bring your revolver? I know I've forgotten something. I thought I left the stove on. You did. <laughs> just, all this is happening as he's like, he's choking out this guy. And just every bit of mundane dialogue just like crackles off the screen. It's amazing. Bring a dress coat. You bring a dress coat. <laughs> uh, like... That first, that shot that you mentioned, that's such a Guy Ritchie shot, like the the low angle looking up. Um, but one of the things that I, I love about their relationship with each other, and it's a it's something that I love when movies really can sell me on, is it doesn't feel like it was written for this movie. Like, it, it doesn't feel like this was, that this is just, you know, these two made up characters and that all of their interactions start in the opening scene. There's a genuine sense of history between the two. Uh, they never act like... I mean, the dialogue never, you know, treats it as if we're being fed, you know, exposition or anything. But the way they treat each other, what they say to each other, it all sounds like we're we're coming into a relationship that's probably been established for like 10 years at this point or however long. Yeah, I wrote that. I wrote this down like while watching is that this film feels like a sequel. I mean, the, the, especially the, the, considering the core arc and story is about, you know, this conflict that's arising uh, within this friendship that's been around like a decade, you know, of, you know, this pesky females coming <laughs> to this bromance. But uh, it, it feels like this is a, a second chapter almost, you know, like, like we had the origin story that established the relationship and this is you know, the test of their friendship. And, you know, the fact that this film can, you know, completely immerse us in this world of, and you know, again, as you said, feels like we're stepping into a relationship that has, has existed for a long time. And, and, and it's not in a way like I feel there's missing material. It just feels like there's, there is something so authentic and lived in about these characters that just, that, that, that makes you feel like there's, you, know, you, you missed the first film. Yeah. It almost makes you forget that you're watching a movie, not entirely just because Guy Ritchie has so many different things he does that very firmly remind you that you're watching a movie, but stuff like this makes it more obvious when you watch other movies that really kind of hit you over the head with, you know, dialogue that wouldn't naturally happen, but happens for the sake of catching you up. 
from the opening scene, that first, like, their entire relationship, the dynamic and how they view each other, just in that one conversation as he's choking the guy out, is completely established, but in a way that feels like it's natural. Like, they might be having that, con- they might have had a similar conversation, you know, the week before, and they'll probably have another one of these a week later. It's just, I mean, like you said, we're stepping into something firmly established, and in a way that that doesn't feel like, wait, you know, who is he? Who Like, everything we need to know is right there in the beginning. And it never feels like it's just being spoon-fed to us or we're being talked down to or anything. Yeah. And I genuinely think the core arc in this film, you know, that explores the friendship and relationship between Holmes and Watson is legitimately great writing. I mean... Essentially, the whole thing plays out like a rom-com, essentially. These two people who've like been on this long, dysfunctional relationship that they both took for granted. And now that changes are coming, they have to you know, figure out what it really means to them. Um, and, you know, Watson is the one who's actually going through the change. You know, he's had this, you know, he's the soldier. And he basically continued soldiering on within his civilian life by plugging himself into Holmes's detective work. Uh, but now that's kind of coming to an end and he has to you know come to grips with you know what his what what is what is his life even right now you know what would it be without Holmes what would it be without this you know co- this single constant you even you know how even with how annoying Holmes can be and how much he can get on his nerves it, it, it's almost like like he's an, an addict in the situation like every step of the way he could like completely acknowledge that he needs to move on that he needs to change his way of life that it's unhealthy for him now that he's in this relationship and, and Holmes is actively trying to sabotage it, but he just keeps coming back to it. And it, it's, I think it's really well communicated. It's, it's not, it doesn't pound us over the head with it. It's just a lot of it's done in like little looks like where, um, where they go, they go to, to the uh, ginger midget's house or uh, laboratory. And, you know, he, he turns, he has to go to the, to the, uh, have tea with Mary's parents and he kind of turns and walks away and just stops and looks back. And we know everything that's going through his mind right then. Because he has to keep coming back. Where later on when um, when Holmes intentionally leaves his gun. And you know, he just has to go after him now. And it's just. You understand. Everything about this relationship. And Holmes is by no means innocent in all this. And I think the, uh, what the idea like is how absolutely unafraid the film is to paint him as a total jerk just the how savagely he is trying to get in between them especially the scene in the restaurant where he just basically tries to destroy uh Mary on every level or um the uh or when he hires the the gypsy fortune teller just he is basically a spoiled child at the center of this and seeing how both Watson is trying to come into terms with his addiction to this adventurous life and inability to, you know, maintain a sense of responsibility outside of it. And Holmes's, you know, need for that companionship and need for Watson, even though he's always pretending that he hasn't, he, that he, you know, he just kind of allows Watson to tag along. He doesn't want, he can't admit that he, he has that need and just the way those, that different relationship is constantly, just circling and bouncing into each other throughout the film until it finally comes to a conclusion in the end. I think it's actually kind of brilliant. Yeah, I love that it's not just something that's kind of introduced at the beginning and then concluded at the end. This 
impending shift in the relationship hangs over like every scene with them throughout. Uh, it's it's never dropped. It's never forgotten. It's like this cloud hovering over even the action scenes. You know, as a as the what's his name, the big Frenchman. Oh, uh, Oh yeah, Georgia. As he comes in, you know, uh, Watson just says, you know, you have ten minutes, or, or I'm supposed to be gone at that point. <laughs> my, my ten minutes are up. Yeah, like it's we're always reminded about it, and it affects the way they approach everything. Like you said, there's I don't know if there's ever a scene where they they find a new clue and they have to move on, where Watson just kind of comes along instantly of his own volition. It he always needs a nudge. He always has to be kind of pushed or led that way and so it's not just this you know oh how do we how do we kind of change their relationship at first and we introduce this move and then we kind of just go back into a a familiar story with the two this whole idea of a conflict between the two you know with Watson being released on bail and Holmes not initially and Holmes having to like come to grips with existing outside of watson even though it's only for a small bit yeah like it's it's embedded in every single moment throughout the film all the way to the climax um so that whenever we do get to the end we don't feel like oh yeah they were they were moving there was something about departure at the beginning like it's it's such a core theme of the whole movie yeah and and it's ne- it never even brought up, like completely brought up until that scene in, in the uh, you know, the holding cell where Watson is like trying to psychologically diagnose himself of why he keeps, you know, he allows Holmes to continue, you know, dragging him into this rather toxic relationship. Um, and, you know, Holmes has been is basically in complete denial of what even their what even their relationship is. Um you know, for the first, basically up until that la- that moment after the the war was blown up, and he he had to treat him in the hospital, and, and you know they're they're awkwardly sitting on the bed together, and he's like, "I'm just you know, glad you're still with us." And it's it's just this again, it's, it's all in the chemistry because they're barely even talking, but just, you you realize they've both kind of finally come to terms with what they are, and you know the fact that they're going to have to somehow exist without the other, but it's all it happens in this silent moment between them. It's just it's just, it's so well done. Yeah, I like that. It never feels like we have that moment of realization for Holmes in terms of, you know, what what that relationship is. Like you said, he's always, he's in denial about it, but he's not unaware of it. Um, I think in his, in the, the way Robert Downey Jr. plays it, in the back of his mind, he he kind of understands and he's on the same page as Watson but he is in denial and he's trying to find ways to kind of twist it around on him. Like when they're sitting um, in the prison yard, he's like, why would, why would I go to my brother's house? Or why would you go to my brother's house without me? Now you're sounding crazy. Like he's always trying, trying to flip it on him. Yeah. And so I I like that from the very, their very first scene together, especially um, after the opening scene and they're kind of back at the house you definitely feel this tension and it's it's fully known by both characters we're not just kind of waiting for sherlock to catch up and learn oh you know i've i've kind of been addicted to like the presence of a companion he's he's fully aware of it and he's at every turn trying to use that to his advantage to like keep the status quo 
And you know, beyond his outright manipulations, I love the, just how functional their relationship is. Like you see, it's never even pointed out, but you see how much Watson has, you know, learned of his methods, you know, when they go to the tomb, it's like, you know, who won the rugby match? You you guys never miss an opportunity to, to uh, obliterate any potential evidence. Or, you never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or uh, the scene where they're examining the watch and Holmes kind of coax, lets him run through all the possible scenarios. And, you know, Watson comes to the conclusions on his own. <laughs> then they look up and realize that Holmes has actually already done the solved the entire case and was just, you know, allowing Watson to, you know, come to the conclusion on his own without having without spoon feeding. It's just and I, I, I never even got that joke until this last viewing. It's so subtle. The scene where the, the, he's looking at the watch and and, you know, uh, Watson is basically running through all the evidence and coming to the conclusion. And they look up and realize Holmes didn't need him to do any of that. He's just allowing Watson you know, to, to think that he's accomplishing something. But, but then there's that moment of silence where Watson realizes that as he realizes they're already at the pawnbroker's place that he was surmising about, you know, all this time. It's it's so good. It, it almost feels like a mixture of two different things. Like the there's a more like narcissistic element to it of Holmes kind of allowing him to do that only so he'll realize that all of that mental work he just put through like Holmes got through in just a matter of seconds but it also almost feels like Holmes is kind of prideful about it like in his mind he's grooming um Watson to be someone similar to him and like I think he takes a a bit of self-satisfaction from seeing Watson like understand this and come to uh come to these conclusions on his own terms so it's I mean, I guess with both ways, there's still a level of, you know, self-gratification and self-congratulation. Um, but he did, like, it's not entirely self-centered. Like, I think there's a genuine, I mean, even uh, Mary acknowledges it, that he cares for him just as much as she does. And so I think he's, he, there is a sense of selfless pride he takes in, in seeing Watson succeed as well. Well, there's definitely a lot of, manipulation especially in that sequence but I, that i think is a genuine aspect of their relationship you know the way him you know as you said kind of grooming watson to you know to, and then they're teaching him to uh you know function on his function with that you know, the same methodology that that feels completely genuine between the two yeah i also want to talk about this adaptation of watson which I think it's actually a, a very, very faithful one. You know, Watson is so often portrayed as either, you know, either stuffy or stuck up or kind of old and buffoonish. You know, I think the most popular portrayal is Nigel Bruce, and he's basically, you know, an old buffoon. But Watson in the stories, you know, what, what was, you know, a military man, he, you know, very, very intelligent and energetic. You know, even Holmes would even, you know, send him off on his own to like, to work on cases, uh, the Hound, the, the Hound of Baskerville is basically, for the most part, Watson on himself, you know, solving the case. Yeah, so, so this this version of Watson, who is, you know, very much a necessary component to this, uh, you know, to this duo, feels a lot more faithful to the more you know goofier uh, types. And I think Watson, I mean, not Watson, well, I think Jude Law really brings a lot of to that, you know. He, he feels like a retired military man. You know, he spends the entire film with this limp and a cane 
with an injury, you know, we're never even uh, told about. But it just provides that layer of history to his character. And just the way he um, he just always has Holmes's back and, and kind of, you know, almost babies him in between the cases. <laughs> like in the beginning where he has to go and coax, uh, coax uh, Holmes out of his room. Be gentle with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that they make Watson, you know, capable both mentally and physically. Um, that he's never just kind of there to be like just an assistant while he's, you know, I mean, the movie's called Sherlock Holmes. He feels just as bit front and centered almost. Yeah. The way the film portrays their relationship, he like Holmes would probably have gotten killed some at some point in the first scene if he didn't, you know, have Watson, you know, completely having his back at every moment. And something else that I liked a lot too, is that, while Watson between the two is definitely like the straight man, he's he also has his own flaws, you know. Like I mean, he's diagnosing himself halfway through the movie, where he's like, I, "There's I'm addicted to this, and it's I am psychologically disturbed." Yeah, and so and then you know there there are the comments about like gambling addictions and things like that. And so while he's definitely got his head on his shoulders, you know, more so than um, Sherlock does, he's still kind of working through his own problems and his own you know, demons or whatever. Problems that Holmes is fully aware of and compliments, you know, <laughs> by you know, holding his money for him, things like that. Yeah. And so, like, it's... I, I definitely think Sherlock relies more on Watson than Watson on Sherlock, but they've definitely created this very, like, um, symbiotic relationship with each other where it's like it's... You know, they're so in sync with each other that they don't even really have to work through their plans verbally, but they're, they know everything that's happening as it happens in the fights, you know, just with glances, they're kind of always in tune with what the other's doing. And then in terms of the case, you know, Sherlock can always tell whenever Watson's kind of catching on to something and um, yeah, their whole dynamic with each other. I'm glad that Sherlock isn't the one just completely in shambles and Watson has it all together and that Watson kind of has his own problems and, and he's trying to deal with that while also, you know, in a in a weird way, like babysitting almost Sherlock and getting him to, you know, come out more. Yeah, he's babysitting Sherlock, but Sherlock is providing him with that that sense of purpose and that you know that 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 mission that his soldier, you know, his soldierly mind needs. Which until you know Mary comes in and throws that entire symbiotic relationship out of whack. And I think that that core of the film, I think, is pretty much flawless. And I think, well, the plot mechanics are rather dubious. I very much I, I do like that we have that solid center, to, you know, that everything in the film points back towards at one point or another. But we haven't even really talked about Downey Jr.'s performance. And this could have so easily just been, you know, a kind of a Tony Stark ripoff and it really could, it isn't it, it is you know Robert Downey Jr. is just a phenomenal actor and he creates even though they're both uh, you know super you know ahead of their time super geniuses who are you know who are also you know nar narcissistic jerks and you know think way too highly of themselves there's really no overlap as far as you know characteristics and personality 
they don't. I don't think Tony Stark at any point of this watching this movie. Yeah, it's really weird to me. It's a testament to his acting ability that on paper the two characters to me can look super similar. Like you said, they're they're very narcissistic. They're fully aware that they're going to be the most intelligent person in whatever room they're standing in. Um, they love being the center of attention. It's there's so many like you could there's so many bullet points you can make comparing the two, and yet in actual performance in their personality, they're very very different. I think, um, I think Tony Stark, while he obviously has a whole lot of his own issues, he carries a lot more maybe confidence than uh than Sherlock does, or at least the confidence that he carries is less of a facade. Because I think swagger, yeah, <laughs> definitely carries more of that. Because in this, Sherlock here almost feels like he's way more fragile than obviously he wants to let on. Uh, I mean, the whole movie is about him trying to, you know, deny his need for Watson all while trying to maintain the status quo with Watson. Um, and I also think he's able to, as as much of a jerk as he can be, he's also able to kind of evoke a lot of sympathy for him, um, you know, with the scene at the table where he's just being a complete jerk to Mary, and he has the the wine splash in his face. As soon as he's left there, you, despite how how rude he's been, there's a level of sadness you feel for him as he he tries to keep his composure as the food is brought to him instantly, and you know everybody had seen what just happened. So he kind of he tucks the napkin in and he tries to completely remain dignified. You can see in his eyes though that he knows that this is just kind of. This outward appearance is not at all how he feels, and you feel sad that his his very rude and self centered plan backfired because now he's sitting in a restaurant covered in wine and he feels like a jerk. Um, and then of course he's got to go bare knuckle box to kind of get over that. Mm-hmm. And he has an ability to shift between drama and comedy, or do both at the same time. That is absolutely incredible like this film is you know highly comedic and it's you know it's it's always you know having a witty witty one-liner or some kind of visual gag but he's able to just switch on a dime to you know to this deep vulnerability and you know fragility that that the character has and this is just you know this is it's, it's going back and forth throughout the entire um film and even like there's something about the, the the comedy that never once feels um like it undermines the drama or anything you that or it never feels uh like fake like the comedy feels like it, this is the most natural outworking of who this person is and th- that that's the same thing he brings to, to to the character of Tony Stark which i think makes him so compelling and so beloved is that he you know the humor doesn't feel like, oh, we got to be funny because it's a funny movie. It feels like this is who he is. Yeah, we've got to be funny because Sherlock Holmes would say this and it would be funny. And that's just yeah, how, how and, things are. You know, that magic power is doubled with, through this chemistry with Jude Law. But it, does, it doesn't take away from just how good this performance is. He's always working something. And, but also, what's crazy is that the fact that this, hap- this is only a year after Iron Man, but he looks. He, he even looks. He looks so sickly and completely unhealthy. Just there's these giant bags under his eyes. He feel, he seems rather gaunt. 
and he just you know he carries himself differently. He just, he completely completely inhabits this role. And I, I I I just I don't think this performance gets you know or, or, or you know Downey Jr. as an actor really gets the the credit for you know, for just how deep and layered and you know, genuinely dramatic these performances are. You know because they are in films that are so lighthearted, that are so self aware and tongue in cheek. But he 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 never once phones in the performance. He's always giving it everything and giving, you know, a full dramatic performance underneath every bit of comedy. It's it's incredible. Yeah, I was gonna say even his like physical mannerisms are completely different from Tony. Um, Tony's always like standing so upright, and I mean, I think the especially with the first one, they kind of portray him as you know this health nut like the the shakes he drinks and things like that. And he, he carries himself like that. And then here, you know, he's, he's often just completely falling down, tripping over himself. He's, he's way more clumsy. He just kind of, it's not nearly like, you know, Jack Sparrow levels, but he's, he never really feels like he's just walking normal. Um, and there's, there's, there's no ego in his appearance. He's a lot of, he has a lot of ego, but, not like in his bearing. He there's absolutely no dignity in how he, you know, he, he carries himself. Yeah. Yes. Another cast member I want to mention that I think is interesting is Rachel McAdams. Um, I think she's miscast in this film. Um, I I'm a big fan of Rachel McAdams. I think she's you know she's very very good at comedy. I mean, I mean if you don't believe me, go see Game Night. It's it's fantastic. Um, so she's great at comedy. But I think she could also do really good uh, dramatic work as well. But something about her feels off. I think w- one big part of that is the accent. Um, she brings she basically has her normal American accent, and and it feels very modern, like as as opposed to say Ambassador Standish, who has an American accent, but it feels completely in place with the time period. It's, it's it has kind of some English lilts to it. That, you know, feels like it has that age. She just feels like she walked in off the street and is, you know, reading her lines in her uh, completely normal voice. It just doesn't sound right, uh, like for the time period. But, but, but even beyond that, I think the, the character of Irene Adler, especially as portrayed in this film, is this, you know, this very experienced femme fatale who's, you know, who's living is, you know, infiltrating by, you know, marrying people and stealing their you know, stealing their jewelry or, or I don't know if she ever kills them or not, but, you know, she's, you know, constantly, you know, putting herself into people's lives and, and, you know, ripping them off. I don't sense that kind of worldliness in, um, McAdams performance. There's no, there's, you know, there's no sense of that experience and gravitas that I think a character with this level of, you know, this, this type of life experience would have. She just feels like she's, like she's just kind of having fun, and there's like a bright sweetness underneath it all that just just doesn't. I don't. I don't think it entirely sits well with this performance. And it's not a bad performance. I think she's, you know, she has solid chemistry with uh with um, Robert Downey Jr. I think she, you know, she plays all her all her scenes well. I think, especially when she's being manipulated by uh, the voice who later turns out to be Moriarty. I think she's great in those scenes. You know, where she's trying to you know, maintain that control while she's being manipulated. And the, the moments of like genuine fear when she like, when she goes into the train and finds that he's still watching or, or at the end when, you know, she finally like 
allows herself to be vulnerable without Holmes. I think moments like that, she's very good. But I, I just don't buy the character um, at the center of it. Yeah, it's really weird because I, I was thinking almost the exact same things watching it. Um, I, don't, I don't think I had any complaints, you know, back when I was 13 watching it. <laughs> um, but now watching it, I remember when she first spoke, I was kind of thrown off because I had for some reason completely forgot that she was American. And then she said, you know, something about getting back to um, Jersey. I was like, oh, okay, you know, she's supposed to be American. That's better. And then she kept talking after I found that. I was like, ah, it still doesn't sound right. Like, even knowing that this just doesn't feel right. Um, like you said, it feels like she just, this is, this is Rachel McAdams speaking like, you know, speaking with the dialect a modern American now would have. Uh, and it really feels a little bit off. Um, like you said, I, I do think that she interacts really well with Robert Downey Jr., um, and as far as like, you know, the, the history that she'd have, you know, with, with her kind of lifestyle, yeah, it feels like she's always, and maybe that, you know, the intention is to make her seem very polished, you know, like that a man would want to marry her and things like that. But it really doesn't feel like she has this history of like violence behind her that she's got a lot of worldly experience. There's just something about the way she plays it, um, I mean, maybe it's, you know, it's highlighted by the fact that she's acting with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, who both completely sell this sense of gruff history. Like, you know, with with things like the limp and just his rough around the edges way that Jude Law plays it. You know, I, I'm completely sold on him being an ex-military guy who's been doing this for years now. And Sherlock Holmes just, you know, crawling all over the floor. He feel, both feel very, very authentic and uh, and then even the you know like like you said the side characters all these other people they feel like they belong in this world and there's just something about her mixture of the 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 way she speaks and or no it just doesn't feel like it's for the this movie yeah all three characters are putting up facades that we see break all throughout the film you know Watson is trying to you know, maintain this air you know. St- you know, military you know, uh, professionalism, but you know, he's constantly slipping the more and more frustrated he gets and, and Holmes is an absolute mess. He, like you see who they want to be. You see who they try to portray themselves as, but you're constantly seeing who they really are underneath. And it, it should be the same for a character, especially a character like Irene Adler, who is, you know, is a, a con, a con woman. You know, she's always playing something, I never sense anything underneath that, that, you know, that, you know, that happy go lucky exterior should be just, you know, should be just that should be an exterior with an interior. But that seems to be all these others of the character. You know, it feels like this, this is her first con she's pulling and she's just, she's just happy to be here and happy that it's going well. You know, there's no sense of, you know, that the more serious conniving woman underneath that should be there. Yeah. And I think it doesn't help that she, I don't think she has as much screen time as the character as portrayed in the film warrants. Um, It almost feels like there should be kind of parallel arcs between, you know, you have Watson and Mary and, you know, the, the stress that relationship puts on the, uh, on the film, but, and you know what that reveals about Watson. And you would think in turn, like they, they do talk about the effect that, 
Adler has on Holmes. So she's, you know, why is the only woman you ever cared for a world-class criminal? Uh, and, you know, just how absolutely helpless she is around her. I love the line, you know, what does she want? An alibi? A human can do. She, she could put you on your back and paddle you up the Thames. Um, so, yeah, like, there is all of that there of what she means to Holmes. But I feel like there should be kind of that parallel arc to where she kind of, she should reveal something about Holmes that puts him into conflict with Watson that I don't really feel is there. But I mean, I, essentially, plot-wise, she is only in this film to set up the sequel, and I think that's okay because I think she is integrated really well each step of the way. You know, she's the one that points Holmes to the case originally, and she comes in throughout the plot at various moments to push it forward. So it's not like she's like it's not like she's Black Widow in Iron Man Two or something. <laughs> she has a purpose, but in the end, like if you just want to say like why is she here? Mainly is to set up Moriarty for the sequel. And maybe the problem is you know what the sequel does with her, which I really really dislike. But it just feels like the, the film doesn't entirely know what to do with her, even though it, it, it likes her a lot. It doesn't seem to really have a you know a fixed place for her. Yeah, and, and maybe it's just a result of how focused the movie is on the relationship between Sherlock and Watson that it, it's kind of hard to find this, the same amount of room or even like comparable amount of room between her and Sherlock. But even still, you say it feels like the movie is aware of the fact that her character should affect Sherlock in a way that, you know, like you were saying, reveals more about him with different lines of things, but it, it just feels like the movie saying it knows about that, but it's not really going to explore that. Um, and I mean, it's not something I hold like super against it because I do think that I, I do really enjoy their interactions with each other. And I think there's a, a lot of great lines that come about it, you know, saying like, would you rather me go through them chronologically or alphabetically? I love that. Which is just how, like, after he wakes up and finds her, he's just going around trying, like, checking the safes and making sure she hasn't stolen anything. I would have loved if they had made her kind of a third wheel. Like, the scene in the factory where, like, she's chained up and they're trying to save her. Like, the interactions, I think she I think she slips into that position, you know, between the two very well and, just, and you know, works off of their chemistry together. I, I think, like, that works really well. I think if you, you wanted to have her kind of reflect the, their relationship and, or, and, you know, and or, you know, interfere with it, I think, you know, making her that third wheel would have... Would have been yeah been good. I think they 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 give um you know they, they give lip service to that like the uh, when when um Watson and Sherlock are making the plan and she just walks and starts shooting you. She loves an entrance to your muse. <laughs> like there are moments where they do play with that idea, but it never feels like it comes together to be anything significant. Yeah, I almost feel like maybe a way they could have done something like that would be. You know, we, this whole movie, Sherlock is trying to keep a tight grip on Watson and re keep things the way they are. Maybe because of the how he can't really control himself when he's around her. You know, Watson wanting Sherlock to be more independent, but he's also his friend. Maybe you could see him falling for someone who would, in the end, be kind of toxic for him. And he's trying to maintain, you know, his his stance that I'm going to be leaving like this, things can't continue the way they are while also remaining his friend and be like, hey, this, this isn't good for you. Yeah. Um, and trying to balance between that tug of war going on. 
and, and not to keep harping on this, but one last point is, in the end, it feels like they separate in the end because the script calls for this to be tragic lovers who can't be together. Not because, like, the emotion of that scene, like the way she, you know, is, I don't want to run anymore, and she's finally being open and honest with him and, and vulnerable where she, the way she hasn't been the entire time. And, you know, she's, you know they're literally having this, this emotional connection on, on a level that they haven't had through the entire film or haven't allowed themselves to have. It feels like that moment is what organically lead to greater connection, not like the, sep- the, 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 the choice to separate feels so arbitrary at that moment and not, it doesn't feel like that was what this film was like the, journey on this film and and to that final culmination of emotion doesn't feel like it's leading to tragic lovers being separate it feels like it's leading to unity but it feels like they're saying no we can't do this because the script says we can't do it yeah i remember watching that once you know when you see the tears well up in her eyes i'm almost like taken back like wait what is what is this scene doing like i feel like especially considering you know i mean she says a line you know i'm going to be open with you and he says i wish you would it's obviously interrupted by the final confronta- uh, confrontation with Blackwood. But that's also, that's the precedent to the conversation, is her being open to him, finally. And then, of course, the first thing she says is, I'm tired of running. And and now Sherlock is in a position to where he's not quite as attached to the hip uh, with Watson as he is. And so everything, this whole journey that Sherlock's gone through, where he's learning to be more independent, this whole journey that... Um, that Irene has gone through where she's willing to drop this facade and and be more open. Everything about it, like you said, feels like it's leading to this culmination of, okay, well, if we're more honest and we're okay with exposing our own faults more, we could make this work. And then it's like, but it'll it'll never work. <laughs> and it ends like, wait, why but why? Yeah. Uh but, but I guess bringing back to a positive there is Mark Strong as Lord Blackwood. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Strong is just one of those, you know, fantastic, absolutely dependable character actors that is you know never bad at any, anything, and everything he touches is better for it. Um, he's he's played he plays a lot of villains <laughs> because he's so good at it. But you know, we, as we saw uh, this year, t- t- have you seen the uh, Kingsman: The Golden Circle? I have not yet. But that, that you know that he's playing this very warm, lovable Scotsman, and like he he can play both. But here, he, he is so great at playing this, this sinister, like almost devil-like figure, who always you know, always has complete composure and, and acts like he he owns every scene he walks into. You know, the that and that, that's you know that's the trick of who his character is. He you know, he's basically bluffing his way through every step. So. It, it makes sense that he carries himself with so much control, but I love just the way he's photographed. Like he has that, that kind of crooked tooth, which he actually really has, but I love just how the camera focuses on that as he's doing like his incantations. It, it just, and highlights it. Yeah. It just makes him feel that much more sinister or the, um, the shot reverse shot when they're in the prison and Holmes is at the bars. Just, there's just, something about the composition and the way his face stands out in the black cell. That is just so, just wrong <laughs> the film makes you believe, or at least suspect that he could be this legitimately be this you know lord of darkness but it also it, it it constantly plays with the concept that maybe it is all fake is it real is it not 
and you know the entire film is challenging that notion and i think he he carries himself with just that right amount of you know charm and menace and all and almost amiability with the and, and you know respect that he has for holmes that I don't know, it's just a really good performance. It makes a very fun, engaging villain. Yeah, one of the things that I had written about just Mark Strong was that I feel like any movie he's in is given that much more credibility. Like, he as a character, is, or he as an actor, is going to take whatever character you give him and make him way more than he would be otherwise. Um, what I, it, He just looks good on camera. Like, he... Yeah. In Especially with black leather. Yeah, like he just, he looks like he belongs in a movie. Um, and there's so many shots. Like you said, the one at the bar. I love how, just how quickly he shows up to the bar. It's, it feels obviously very oh, intentionally he, oh, like yeah. supernatural. And and when he starts speaking and hearing him recite that portion of Revelation just gave me goosebumps. And He feels like a prophet. Yeah, it's just, there's just this underlying creepiness about him where like as a viewer i feel like i'm watching some sort of pagan ritual and stuff and he seems so you know invested even when you learn that he's a con man you see how like that the actual lord blackwood himself in the movie is a great actor because he he feels so dedicated to everything he's doing and that that shot of him passing around the goblet and he just kind of like relaxes back into his throne and he crosses his legs. He just looks so at home as this kind of character. And he's, he, he feels like just his body language lets you know that he feels completely in charge of everything going on. And that, that reveal that he is a fraud works completely works because his performance works on either level. Like, like if you're, if you're watching for the cracks in the performance, like that, that reveal that he's, he's, just a con man you can see them but if you you know if you're you know, the first time viewing and you believe he's, he's this you know demonic force force of nature he also works on the performance also works on that level and what's crazy is that by the very nature of this character this figure of mystery everything that is good about this performance is is either mark strong or the direction like the the writing is pretty much non-existent like all it is is you know a bunch of you know, magical catchphrases and cliches because that, that's what he is. You know, he's the con man he, and he's just playing on what the fears are of a magician are. So like everything in that character is entirely in the performance. Like there's, there's no care. There's no backstory. There's no depth or anything because, because it, it, it is all a con. So the fact that there is basically no, no underlying script for the character really makes that performance that much more special. Yeah. And I, I love that you get to see that moment when he realizes that his con has been, you know, has been broken. Whenever uh, the gas never comes out, and it, his face instantly shifts to just worry and concern, and he's out of there at the drop of the hat. When you know that and you rewatch it, you know that there, there there's that potential for all of these scenes because he starts that scene off just as confident as every other scene. You think of like. Just the the sinister swagger he carries to the to the rope as he's about to die, he walks into the the balcony at Parliament the exact same way, and he's this character, and you see that drop, and he just becomes this worried con man who's been found out, um, and so just keeping that in mind, you could you could imagine that happening at any point in the movie, and that all of his con- like the source of his confidence is just in the fact that he's paid off the right people. 
Yeah. Like you said, it works both ways at watching it for the first time and watching it with that in mind. And something that stuck out to me in this particular video is do you think magic and sorcery is real in this film? It's uh, all like all previous viewings. I would have said absolutely not. But now looking at this, this time the film, the film kind of plays fast and loose with it. Like you have the crow that is always there at, at you know, when someone dies um, and you know, he comes back for, uh, for um, Blackwood's soul in the end. And the, obviously you have this order of magicians that they, they, they believe it's real. Yeah. And even like the entire time Blackwood is challenging Holmes to expand your mind, you know, look beyond your rational your rational uh, ideas and and Holmes does and he and he gets the answer but what's you what's interesting about that scene the scene where he does have the séance is that he doesn't learn anything that he didn't already know there's no new information imparted in that scene it's all just a recontextualization of like of information we've already gotten so, you know, that could be attributed simply to, you know, a connection made in his mind while he's on drugs. Um, but I think the thing that tipped me over to the, to the edge a bit and this time is, you know, where he at the end when Holmes, you know, saying, you, know, you better hope this is all fake because you performed all these rituals perfectly. And, you know, it looks like the devil's doing another soul. And you have essentially what is what seems a lot like this final destination accident that, you know, carries him to hell. So, I, I I like that the film you know could be could go either way, but I I almost now think that maybe they were leaning towards the magic is real, and he was just playing with forces that he couldn't comprehend. You know, they they come for his soul in the end. I don't know. I think that's kind of fun. Yeah, it it was that line that kind of made me think about that too, because. It doesn't feel like this kind of like, oh, let me just say something to scare him. There almost feels like there's a little bit of conviction behind that delivery. You know, he says, the devil is due another soul. Um, and it seemed like a legit thing, like, you know, you you performed all of that. Because at this point, this is two people fully made aware of the con. You know, every every illusion is dropped at this point. And yet the, the conversation of black magic is still being had. I mean... Uh, the fact that it's still this this potential threat that looms over him, and then, like you said, the the almost final destination destination level death, you can almost see it as you know fate that because of his actions, even with Sherlock attempting to save him, you know the bridge collapses, the crow shows up, and the bridge collapses. It it may be there, and kind of like you. Before this, I would have been like, no, I, I mean, I think that's the whole point. Like, you're missing the whole point if you think magic is real in this movie. But this one, I don't know, there are just different things. And the fact that as the movie goes on, Sherlock doesn't even deny that possibility. And that it's Watson at first who says, you know... You're, you're not taking this seriously. Yeah, but, but then, you know, uh, Watson later says, you know, like, we have to entertain the idea that... I forget the line itself, but that like something supernatural could hypothetically be true. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and Sherlock acknowledges that. He's like, sure, 
but we cannot use that you know we cannot make that hypothesis now without enough data because then every day all the data we'll get will just be forced into this hypothesis but he doesn't outright deny it and that comes after you know blackwood's challenge to open his mind and so i i think the movie if i had to give an answer i'd say like well i mean i guess <laughs> just basing it off of sherlock's idea there that we need to like maybe no but i i do like that that the um the movie leaves it open you know mm-hmm. i mean i think i think the crow is there for more than just a cool like something visually cool like that it carries thematic meaning i think that could be what it is that in his attempt to con people he's manufactured his own demise mm-hmm. and i i actually i really like the introduction of this element of magic or, or the possibility of some the, the supernatural to the, this world and i mean because you know arthur, sir arthur conan doyle himself was a very avid spiritualist and he you know he held seances and wrote he, a, a lot of books about you know the, this you know this concept not not uh, this concept of you know the 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 this other you know supernatural uh plane world where i'm not, not terribly familiar with all the um you know the ins and outs of it but it was like a, a very popular fad during that time period and he was really involved in it so i and even within the sherlock holmes stories there are multiple times where the possibility of the causes behind various cases was like presented to be you know is it magic you know obviously in the end it always turned out to not be but I, I don't. I, I think this, this type of the idea of challenging him, you know, this completely rational mind with the possibility of the supernatural, I think is a very natural uh, continuation of, you know, the very concept of Sherlock Holmes. That seems to be the, the ultimate challenge to a rational thinker is something that is irrational. So I, I really, I really like the, that they went there. It, it doesn't feel kind of out of left field. Yeah. So I guess you know, moving outside of I guess the themes and the characters, uh, one of th- one topic that I feel like just has to come up in any conversation about a Guy Ritchie movie is just his direction. Because the way he directs a movie is so distinct to him. Uh, it almost mirrors like Sherlock himself and Zimmer's score where it's like it's it's chaotic and kinetic, but it feels very in control. Like despite how frenzied it can feel, it still feels like Guy Ritchie is behind the camera, fully in control of what we're seeing. Yeah, like Ritchie is very often accused of you know having style over substance and just doing cool things for cool things' sake. And while I won't entirely argue with that, I think there is always a value in someone who just sees film differently. You could make the same accusation of say an Edgar Wright, or I think Edgar Wright's probably the most apt comparison. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but there are other filmmakers who just, who just, you know, they look at film through a slightly different lens. And I just, every moment of, you know, a Guy Ritchie film, I think is just fun to watch. Even like, even the pointless scenes are just entertaining. Just, just the way he sees and structures scenes and builds moments. It just feels so unique you could, I mean, you can say style or substance all you want, but I, I think the style informs like the very heart and soul of his films. It's, I don't, I don't, it doesn't feel like it's something entirely strange. It's something that he weaves, 
you know, into every moment. It feels it feels completely organic within the worlds he creates. But in particular, I think he's kind of the perfect choice for Sherlock Holmes because, like, you look at all his. Have you seen any of his previous films? Um, I've seen um, the Rock and Roller. Okay, like he, you know, he he's always playing with perspective and how that affects. Like he's how that affects you know the story. Like he he'll play scenes from multiple perspectives and viewpoints, and like each time it reveals something else about the story. And he, this is what he does in all of his films. It just that's something he like he always is playing with. But I think it works perfectly here because that that is what. A detective is a detective is someone who comes in, and you know, has to take all these contradictory pieces of evidence, these contradictory uh, testimonies, all these different ways of viewing a singular event, and has to you know make sense of it and create a coherent narrative out of out of chaos. So I think the way the way he Richie will constantly re- replay scenes and play them from various perspectives and you know, have a scene play out, then go back and, you know, show flashes of it here and there. Like that, not only does it feel like it mirrors um, Sherlock Holmes's mind and the way he functions, but I think it just, it it, it is a perfect thematic um, uh, visualization of what, you know, what a detective story even is. Yeah, and I mean, you say, you know, he's kind of the perfect guy to take on Sherlock Holmes, and I would say that especially for this, this take, because he he brings his sense of direction to the physical and mental aspects like every aspect of filmmaking here has has Richie's prints on it um and i think that the movie does its best to to maintain the fact that it's it still you know despite being an updated more modern one it's still a Sherlock Holmes movies uh, or Sherlock Holmes movie and so in the fight scenes we we have like what this would look like from Guy Ritchie, and I love that he does it. You know, we don't need the whole slow, like kind of pre go through the whole fight and hear how it's going to go down and have it break down for us like that. That could be left out completely, and it wouldn't really change anything. But it's but just it's like beautiful. Yeah, it's awesome. And Guy Ritchie's like, you know what? Based on the character, and it, it's fully in- it's it's completely informed by Sherlock. It's like, well, what would a guy with the mind of Sherlock like? How would that fight look? Because it'd be very efficient, it'd be very intentional, and that's how he visualizes it. And so it makes sense for Sherlock Holmes, but also just makes sense based on who Guy Ritchie is as a director. And then he brings that same like style to uh, to his detective work, where he, you know he goes in and we just everything is highlighted, and he's, we're constantly cutting, um, like we're just using a bunch of quick cuts to go from here to here to here, just highlighting everything that Sherlock sees at the pace that Sherlock sees it, you know, um, cause Sherlock notices, notices these things a lot quicker than everyone else. So we're just jumping from all of these different things that everyone else would overlook. Um, but he just, he, he does it differently, even with small things like tilting the camera in a different way, um, zooming in in a different way. And, and like you said, when you say it, it kind of affects the movie to its very heart I would agree with that too, because we've already talked about something that's kind of specific to Guy Ritchie when we were talking about um, establishing the dynamic between the characters. Whenever you have that that lower angle, just looking up at these two guys at the very beginning, like you could probably pause that and you said who who directed this movie, 
Guy Ritchie would probably be one of the first names out of my mouth because it just looks like him. And so he's bringing his sensibilities in a way that really complements the story. It's He's never indulging himself. He's, oh, he definitely he's, is. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's never indulging himself at the cost or at the expense of the movie. Um, it feels like he's like, this is what I do well. This is what the movie needs. How can I use my strengths and indulge and not like water down my own sensibilities? How do I bring that to this movie? He's not changing how he directs. He's just understanding his strengths and using it well within the film. Yeah, you know, they're, they're always talking about, you know, paint by numbers blockbusters that, you know, they're all interchangeable and there's never any personality. Well, here <laughs> you have personality. Every single frame is just oozing personality. Yeah, and I, I think it, it, it puts this into the, the mind. Like the, the, the way he creates this controlled chaos, it feels so thematically relevant just to the mind of Sherlock Holmes and the way you mentioned the scene in uh, the Ginger Midges laboratory where it just kind of shows flashes of what what he sees or the scene in the restaurant before uh, Watson shows up where you, you just realize that he hears and sees everything like it just it, like showing all these things is just the chaos and cacophony that he somehow has to create a narrative of inside his mind and that's kind of what this film is yeah, and Something else that I just like about him a lot, and I mean, acknowledging this, I'm sure would cause people who accuses him of just the worst kind of style over substance, they'd probably consider it gives that argument credibility. But to me, I just say it it means he likes things to look cool. And I mean, if they can, why not? But I love that he always manages to find time for cool stuff. Like whenever they're first digging at the body and they're finding out that it's the ginger midget, as Sherlock speaking, we just kind of uh, see a shot of Watson and he he looks down, pulls his hat, kind of spins it and puts it back on. Like there's always little moments that just look really, really cool. Or the moment where uh, we cut and you see the... Uh, hold on. Uh, the way it cuts over and you, you see the, the writing on the box that says this way up. And the camera flips upside down and we follow them. Like it's, you know, obviously it's not completely necessary, but everything looks cool in this movie. Moments that don't have to look cool in this movie. And he's able to ground it all in character. Like the action sequences are, are very character focused. Like there's, there's always, I mean, a very obvious play for humor, but that humor is always saying something about these characters and their dynamics and their relationships with each other. And it just it 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 feels so completely organic to what this film is, <laughs> and, and he, or just and and the way he plays humor, I think, is very good. Like, there's that moment that feels like it's out of like a Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin film, where uh, Dredger's coming after him with a hammer, and he pulls out the, the smaller hammer, and they both stop and just look at it, look at their own weapon, and that that that, that would that feels like it's out of a silent film. It, it, it's just the body language of the actors is so perfect. It, it's. I mean, yeah, I think th- this film is is you know so stylistically coherent, and everything informs everything else. It, it doesn't feel like there's any one. None of the style feels out of place within 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 its whole. Yeah, it, it feels like it's just a celebration of film. Like with these cameras and with this technology and these actors, we can make these things look cool and feel cool. So why not? It's not coming at the expense of anything. Um, and then when you're saying like he the the action is very grounded in the characters, 
one of the things that I was thinking watching this is like, I think you learn just as much about their dynamic with each other during the action scenes as you do the dialogue mm-hmm. scenes. Yes, like, yes. In a simple conversation, you know, where they're actually getting to express their concerns, you can see the that like the way they fight and Watson kind of checking in on Charlie, like, you all right over there? Like, we, it, it's just as informative as anything else in the movie. Um, and then just talking about the way he directs it and I got a lot of, maybe not even just in terms of camera work, but just tone. Um, moments reminded me of like the way Gore Verbinski directed the Pirates movies where it's, the action's always really fun and exciting yeah, the the scene on the bridge is a pirate sequence. In the end, with, with oh, him yeah. and uh, Blackwood sword fighting or Kane fighting or whatever, that is a sequence out of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, and, I mean, it, maybe that's that's why I love both of these because I I love I love and like really entertaining action, like highly comedic action for some like it's just it's so much fun to watch. And so whenever they. It almost reminds me also of like the way Spielberg would direct something like in Indiana Jones where the whole like pausing, like pulling out the gun and shooting the guy after we've given him a moment to do stuff. Like just finding little moments in what could have just been like, okay, well, we got it. It's an action movie, so we need to have them punch each other for a little bit. Like they 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 don't pause it, but they, they take time to highlight something funny about what's going on. And it's just it keeps the action from ever feeling like fatiguing we never i personally never feel like i'm like okay let's get the over like let's get over with this it's it's just really really fun and he's always finding cool stuff to do but that sequence with um uh dredger you know he's like meat or potatoes <laughs> and then as they go you know dredger is french and so just robert downey jr is just speaking in french to him and i don't know what it, what it is about robert downey jr the way he speaking french but something about it, every line is absolutely hysterical just, you know, the way they're back and forth, you know, going after one of them hit, you know, one moment, please, please. And I'm in no hurry. Or then after he shocks them, you know, he's like, one moment. <laughs> we're just in the end, we're just, you know, uh, towards the end, after he takes his, his taser, he's like, run, little rabbit. And it's like, my pleasure. <laughs> but something about the pronunciation of the French is just so funny at every moment. It's just the fact that there's this giant and speaking French in the middle of this fight, it, I was something about it just feels so weird but perfect. Yeah, and I mean because of that scenario, like it's these these two guys who are probably like in the lower levels of un, uh, of London, and this giant Frenchman, and these two like experienced detectives. There's so many different things you can do with that scene. So I I don't understand how anyone could like get upset with someone with the director finding as many little quirks he can with that scene, and I love that. You hear that same musical note where the the violins pick up again. Um, I think it happens like three times in the scene, but it's. I mean, I love it every time. Uh, the most notable one is is whenever he shocks him for the first time and he sends him flying through all the doors, and then you hear him slowly <laughs> like trip over himself as he gets back up, and like the music almost it's like letting you know that the fight is like okay, we can fight again, and they go back at it. Then we might as well talk about the music. Or actually, I think we, we have to talk about the music. Um, I think this is where I first noticed just how brilliant Zimmer is at at, uh, at it, just musical innovation within you know, soundtracks. Because, like on paper, this music is horrendous. Like it's very intense. It, it was you know it, 
they use an intentionally out of tune piano and the violin music violin music is like very intentionally badly played but something about this the way it all comes together with Richie's style could not feel more perfect yeah just like starting off with these loud clanging noises almost and then moving into like these high pitch very like quickly played strings it feels so off kilter but it sounds so right and almost grating like especially the uh the violin music as they're going through the fair the like the circus it's like this sounds horrible but it's beautiful in this moment <laughs> and i i would listen to this like i mean this is i, I genuinely love this score uh, um i've got a like a, a spotify playlist of just different film scores that I enjoy and there's multiple tracks from this that I that I have on there uh it's so much fun to listen to and I I hum it all the time even if I haven't seen the movie for like a couple of years I'll still find myself humming it as I work and things like that I think like this music like just the same with Guy Ritchie's direction is just it is it is the heartbeat of this movie like every moment is informed by the music that like even like right to the opening, like we're having this Victorian style SWAT raid. Like it's just the music is providing with such this propulsion and, and personality that, you know, lets you know exactly what type of film you're watching and, you know, what had, how we should be feeling about all these things happening. It's, it is a perfect score and so many levels. Yeah. It works with the action perfectly well. Like the, the movie moves with the music in a way that couldn't be more perfect. And there's one moment that I, it's, it's relevant to what we're talking about now with the music as well as just like an example of Guy Ritchie making something look cooler than it had to be. It's the, the slow motion explosion. Oh my gosh. The music there is incredible and it fit, you know, the, it's been so fun and frenetic and crazy and it just gets so much slower and more somber at that moment. Yeah, it's it's haunting. Like, I mean, even now knowing that Watson is completely fine by the end of the movie, I love that it's not just like this quick slow-mo explosion we're done. Like, Richie lets us live in that moment for a while. Like, with him, I love him picking oh up the gosh, small palette and using so that as, and just kind of burning off the side as he runs and he's kind of being knocked about. Like, that whole 30 seconds right there, however long it is, it's just like... What I had in my notes is like, this is why we make movies, because we can get cool stuff like this. This is just <laughs> awesome on, like, Robert Downey Jr. is selling it. The direction is awesome. The music is working perfectly in step with everything else. Like, that scene right there encapsulates so much of what I love about the movie, because it's just so many different things working to create a truly standout moment for me. Mm-hmm. I, I think, like, my other, aside from Rachel McAdams and how that arc is used i think my problem with this film is it feels thin um and i not and i i'm not the one who says that you know, every film should have some kind of substance and i think this film does have a have a, a really solid core with the character arc but i think it maybe maybe it's the length i feel like there's maybe one too many sequences like like th- it feels like uh, Richie was kind trying to play to the needs of a blockbuster film. And it just it feels like there's a few too many plot movements. Like like the, the sequence in the um, 
on the docks, the one we're talking about, actually, it kind of feels extraneous. Like if you cut that out and just stitch those two halves together, I don't like. I don't think the film would really feel any different. It just feels like we, you know, this is a, this is a, a detective film, so we have to have machinations and twists and turns. But it, it feels like the film, the plot, kind of loses a focus right around there. Um, and I think you know that that could have been staved off if, say, the the Irene Adler are uh, dramatic. The core of that arc had been stronger and it could have informed the story more i feel like just there's there's a, a time where the film kind of just slightly overstays its welcome then it goes to the climax and it, it works fine but it feels like there's a bit more here than the actual script and drama uh warrants do you feel that at all yeah i was gonna say uh, the the scene with like her um chained up and the the saw cutting through the pigs it feels like maybe a moment like that there, there could have been a way to reunite them quicker because, I mean, we've already come off of a pretty extended fight scene with the, the Frenchman and the two other guys. And, you know, we, we've got two separate death scenes of, you know, like seeming like magic, seemingly killing people and things like that. And then we have obviously the entire climax and multiple movements within the climax. Like it, I do agree that maybe he is just in like a... <laughs> Kind of like what in, or, uh, Steven Spielberg was thinking on Last Crusade. Was like, man, do we have enough action? Should we should we put another sequence here? Um, and then with it, with you saying, you know, it feels a bit thin. For me, I'm not sure if it's for you. For me, it almost feels that way because we do have this really strong core going on with um, Sherlock and Watson uh, from the very get go of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like I said. For me, it, it it's the shadow that hangs over every scene. And we've talked a little bit about how, you know, Sherlock kind of changes because of the plot itself with his, like, being less narrow-minded and opening his mind to these different kind of possibilities. Um, but that's kind of just a surface-level thing. I, I think the plot of Lord Blackwood and his what he's meaning to accomplish has no real bearing on Sherlock Holmes himself. Like all of the changes that he goes through, I think are as a result of he and Watson and what their relationship undergoes. And like, you could have replaced it with any other mystery. And I'm not sure it would have changed Sherlock's outcome too much. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree though. I don't know that that's necessary in a detective story. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if it's that, but I also think a detective story is kind of, it's where something like that could really be used to work. Well, like, I mean, just recently, something like Murder on the Orient yeah. Express, where but the crime... With that, with that, the criticism is, oh, the mystery isn't, isn't as, you know, mysterious. It's not as, it's, it's too, it's too uh, drama focused. Not, it's not a, like a true mystery film. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, and I think it's because it's trying to juggle a lot of different things, you know, with with this idea of is it magic or just human machinations uh, kind of being balanced with Irene's involvement and why she has to be there and the fact that she introduces the you know them having to look for the ginger midget and then going back to her and Moriarty and like maintaining her and Moriarty like her relevance and the relevance of like this shadowy figure 
along with this. It just, like you said, it's 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 steps that I think could have been simplified, but because of what they were trying, like all these different characters and and then setting up for a sequel. Although I don't want it to sound like I'm really negative on the way they use Moriarty, because one of the things that I like about this is that I love that the 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 setup to a sequel doesn't just kind of come as like this after the credit scene. Like Moriarty is despite like yes, his primary function is to set up a character for the sequel, he's still relevant here. You know, I I love the fact that Irene running off was his idea. You know, like well, she'll get this and I'll get what I've always wanted cuz at at the end of the day, he kind of is the lead villain of this movie. So I love that he's not just this tacked on thing. Or, or depending on how you look at it, he's the one who saved England. <laughs> like he's literally the one who gave home, who, who you know, got Holmes involved and gave him the first clue, which led to them being able to stop it. And obviously he wants the poison, but this could have all, you know, he could have known about Black Widow. This could be his method of stopping it because you know he's not ready for the World War Three yet, and he doesn't want he de- he definitely doesn't want he's not ready to profit off of and it. he and also he doesn't want Blackwood on, on top when it happens so like that I think is very clever especially your first setup of the sequel and I think the sequel does definitely it pays off on that promise yeah and so like I, I wanted to make to make sure that I I wasn't negative on the way that they use Moriarty because I just that can be really frustrating to me whenever it's like. It's just very clear. Like this movie is so like really self-contained, and you have this ending scene. It, it's not, it's not super frustrating, but I just think it's really clever that they were able to to find a way to where it ends, where this particular story exists, not in a cheap way, but in a very natural way to set up something bigger that's going on. But it, it all, you know, while being fully self-contained, you know, Blackwood is a for, is definitely a force enough to warrant his own story. Yeah. Um, and it's like this this very open and shut story within a a bigger story that works on its own and and the setup, you know, I I said a little bit, you know, like maybe the extended runtime suffers because of it trying to juggle Irene's relevance and you know introducing and maintaining the shadow of of Moriarty, but at the same time, I still I just really like that he's introduced. I mean, fairly early on in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the plot kind of happens because of him. Um, so it doesn't feel like, like while they are two distinct stories, these two movies work very, very closely in tandem with each other. Yeah, I, I think I think it, it doesn't, it's not that, the the problem is not that Moriarty is here. I think it's more that it's more in Irene Adler, the problem with Irene Adler's dramatic arc, and then the, the actual mystery, you know, not being meaty enough. For the length. And then, you know, I think we've talked about most of the substance of the movie, but honestly, I think the writing here warrants just talking through some of our favorite quotes. <laughs> um, I think some of some of mine are uh, just little things like fun, like finding funny ways of of saying something like whenever after in the in the bare knuckle boxing scene where he's gone through his entire plan. This mustn't register on an emotional level. Yeah. It, it's all set into motion because, you know, the, he spits on him as he turns around. And so after this entire plan has walked through, he, just, he says the line, capacity to spit it back of head. 
neutralized. Like it's just, it's a really, really funny way to word that to me. Um, and then I think one of one of my favorite quotes in the whole movie is whenever Lestrade is saying, "You're know, like, oh, uh, we're we're in the process of giving, uh, getting him out there now." <laughs> and what process or what stage would that be? Contemplative. Like it's every he's he's kind of he's kind of he's not feeling very well. <laughs> like there's so many different mo- like really great lines that are funny themselves, and then they're only made funnier by like. Danny Jr. or Jude Law's comedic timing and and the amazing accents don't hurt at all. It's just, it's super quotable. Yeah, I think two moments that for me that really highlight that chemistry is uh, in the, after Irene Adler leaves the apartment and you know Watson comes up after after he's like, wait, are you wearing a false nose? No, <laughs> he just jumps out the window. <laughs> and he falls into the coal cellar. He's like, Watson, Watson. <laughs> This perfect little comedic sequence that it doesn't go anywhere, but it just it, it, that scene did not need that moment, and yet that moment says everything about their relationship. Or when they're in the carriage, you know, you, you have the grand gift of silence, which makes you invaluable. As a partner. <laughs> it, just, it just punches him. What a homeless reaction! He's like, "Oh my god, what are you doing?" Like, it's, it's just so, just beautiful. Yeah, and another thing that I really like is just that Sherlock has his own distinct relationship with every individual. He never just talks to someone. Like, the way he speaks to Watson is specific to the way he speaks with Watson. The way he speaks um, with, ah, I'm forgetting the the woman they rent from. Uh, is it poisoned, Nanny? <laughs> the way he's, like, that's a very clearly defined one. And the way he speaks with Detective Lestrade, I think my favorite line, or well, my other favorite line between he and him is, um, in another world you would have made an excellent criminal, and you an excellent uh, policeman. Like this, he's got Can a I borrow very your pen. Yeah, just so casually gives it back to him. Like he's got a very very specific way of dealing with every individual person, um, and his lines reflect that, and they almost always lead to. Lead to some pretty great quotes. <laughs> so, you know, this one smell I can't put my finger on is you know, barley sugar, you know, candy floss, apple toffee, toffee, apple. It's just like you know, that, you know, that that scene could have just been they walk in and they see him, but you know, he they they play off you know the character dynamic and his you know, his power of smell. It's, it's just so. I think there was so much going on in every scene on so many levels. And I, 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 have no, I don't know how much of this is ad libbed. I have a hard time believing all of this was scripted because it, it is so perfectly in tune with these performances. And, and I don't know, just, there seems to be some kind of just beautiful chemistry going on between Jude Law, Robert Downey Jr., and Guy Ritchie on set that just creates a movie that is so just entertaining every second of, of you know the time it's on screen. Yeah, and I mean. I don't see why any would want, you know, would want to complain about this. The fact that he's able to take all of these moments and and give us those lines. Like I would prefer them get there and speak through what he's smelling instead of just finding him instantly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the scene at the end where he's hanging himself. <laughs> so, you know, suicide is not in his repertoire. He's far too fond of himself. He just pokes him with his staff. And we're like, oh, my tongue's going. Come on, Austin. I'll be no use to it all. He's just, huh, worst things could happen. 
Or that, like, he, you know, as Sherlock mentions it, like, two more times afterwards, and they just, the requests get completely ignored. It's like, oh, but what about that? Like, he's just, like, saying, like, asking a question that he knows Sherlock is still going to go along with. It's almost like the, the pages have flipped, and now he's... Watson's he's, paying him back for all, back yeah, all he's, that time. He's taking advantage of the fact that, like, if you prods him about what he's learned, he, he'll be willing to hang there for a little bit longer to explain it. Yeah, I think um, I think we've about, about covered. Do you have anything else, Al, you want to mention before we move into a close? I think I'm ready to move on. All right, let's, let's uh, move into our star rating. Um, what do you give this film? Um, I think looking at what I gave it on Letterboxd was a uh, was four stars, and I don't know. I I feel like every time I rewatch something that I love. You know, growing up, a lot of times watching it now with a more critical eye, I see, I see more problems. But at the same time, I feel like I I enjoyed this movie just as much, if not more so, now than I did at first. And so, I don't know if I really want to take away any stars. And I think, in terms of my own personal enjoyment, that's uh, that's where I'm still at. Yeah. And it- like objectively, like considering the, I think the, the pretty somewhere somewhat significant flaws in the plot and the character of Irene, I think objectively I would have to give it three and a half. But then when I just sit down and think about just how much joy there is to be found in this movie, I, I just I just have to bring it back to four. So I, yeah, I think I'll, I'll I'll go with you. Just yeah, objectively maybe three and a half, but there's something so special about this movie. Maybe it's just for me. Maybe it doesn't be that other people don't feel that, but I think there's something just absolutely brilliant about just how this movie is put together. That just makes it so magical. So I, ha- I have to give it four. Yeah. And I mean, I, to me, I, I always kind of think about that balance between taking away from like taking away from the rating for like very clear cut objective faults. But then I think at the same time, you reward it whenever it goes above and beyond in areas it doesn't have to. and Which is everything in yeah, this movie. Like every action beat, every line, every discovery is played like with great humor and stuff. It just gets so much right that I'm willing to reward it with that, with that extra half a star because it's like, I you earned it. You worked for it. You put in more effort than I think another director would have. And to, to the point where, I mean, it's, in my eyes, a four-star. Yeah. Uh, so upon its initial release in Christmas of 2009, 2009 uh, it did pretty well at the box office. It earned um, $209 million domestically and $315 million overseas for a grand total of $524 million on its $90 million budget. It received a pretty positive critical reception with a lo- uh, most of the praise going towards the uh, fantastic performance of fa- Robert Downey Jr. at the center and, of course, you know Jude Law and the just the chemistry there and as well as a you know, Richie's direction. I think it, it got both praise and criticism. Like, like there's a large, very loud contingent that just hates this movie for what it does to Sherlock Holmes. And well, I, I could part be a book fan. I could partially understand that. I'm, uh, but yeah, I, I think I, I don't think it's entirely fair to just simply say, this isn't my Sherlock Holmes. So that means, you know, the direction's bad because We've all we've all talked we've talked all this time about how well it complements the story. Um, so the reception to Guy Ritchie himself was pretty mixed, but I uh, think the general consensus that it, w- it was a fun, entertaining movie, if kind of a little lightweight, and that seems to pretty much still be the 
general perception of the film. Um, uh, the, the release of Sherlock has, I think, pretty hugely, uh, you know, just dimmed the star of this movie. Like it seems to be kind of it's relegated to the side, and that that people now kind of view that as the definitive Sherlock reimagining, which is understandable. That's a fantastic show, but. I, I don't know that this film quite gets the attention it deserves. You know, this film did do that first. Like a lot of what Sherlock does was done. Uh, you know, like that, that, entire, that entire quirky, um, the, the entire you know, quirky reimagining that is the very heart and soul of Sherlock was is almost beat for beat in some areas. What what they you know did here. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of comparisons between the dynamic of. Uh... Sherlock and Watson in both interpretations. Yeah, and just the the visual style as well. If you, you know, that could be Guy Ritchie. And honestly, even the uh, some of the music almost feels similar. Like the the opening theme that plays has kind of a some similar some musical sound. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, I think you know, I don't know if it's quite acknowledged just how much th- this version inspired that version, which. I mean, I, I, I won't, I can't, I don't know if I can say which is better. I, I absolutely love both, but I, I think, I don't think this one should be, you know, as this one just seems, people don't, people seem to be kind of dismissive of this one. And I, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, I, and maybe it's just because of, I'm, I'm just a really big fan of, of Guy Ritchie. I love both of these. Uh, I even love rock and roll and I, I love uh man from uncle. It's just sad to see him put so much work and give so much fun energy to these stories and not get recognized for it. Yeah. So I guess as far as just its legacy is people think it's fun <laughs> and they're not wrong. All right. Uh, so that was our review of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, if you enjoyed it again, I want to ask you to please go and rate and review us on iTunes. And if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook. We are there as franchise fatigue podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there as we're there as at franchised pod and if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. Where can people follow you, James? Um, mostly uh, over on Letterboxd, a movie reviewing site. I'm there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um, I'm continuing to watch through uh, horror slashers. And I have, I guess, what will be a... With very bad opinions controversial we agree on most things with a couple exceptions and i've got a controversial review of halloween i just put up there and i'm glad other people enjoy it but i man i do not get the hype but uh anyway i'm exercising great self-control right now (laughs) well i'm not it was not nearly as good as everybody says it is but anyways that's where you can find most of what i write uh, I'm also on uh, Letterboxd. Uh, there's Gabriel Green. Um, I'm on Twitter, and I'll occasionally tweet at Gabe A. Green. Um, so next week, we will uh, obviously be talking about the, se- the sequel to this film, uh, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Uh, and if all goes well, we will have a guest for that discussion. Um, it's been a, w- a bit since we had one, so I'm looking forward to that. I've only seen that film twice, and I remember liking it, but not nearly as much as this one, so I'm, I'm I know, I know it's very different stylistically. It feels a bit, a lot more elegant, for a lack of a better word, in its style. Which I, I'm very interested to see how Guy Ritchie's, uh, you know, his direction evolved over the two films. Yeah, I, I actually slightly prefer Game of Shadows. Actually, 
Um, but I guess obviously we'll talk about that a week from now. So until next week, we will see you in the sequel. Follow your spirit and upon this charge, cry God for Harry, England and St. George. I don't know why they said that, but it's amazing. <laughs>